what I think happens is writers tend to pick some particular idea and then they take it to the absurd extreme. And that's where the conversation has fallen into is those extremes. I take a different tact is I think that we are better served to use a hard science framework for how this works. We can take the engineering today and what we know, and we can run that forward and we can come up with highly likely scenarios. And I think we should focus on those. So because then you're just having a conversation that is not very helpful because I think running those forward, we have some real problems to solve and we should focus on those problems. As a careful study of the world, science is reflective and reactive. It constrains our flights of fancy, anchors us in hard-won fact. By contrast, science fiction is a speculative world-building exercise that guides imagination and foresight by marrying the known with the unknown. The field is vast. Some sci-fi writers pay less tribute to the line between the possible and the impossible. Others, though, adopt a far more sober tactic and write hard sci-fi that does its best to stay within the limits of our current paradigm while rooting visions of the future that can grow beyond and beckon us into a bigger, more adventurous reality. The question we might ask, though, is which one is which? Our bounded rationality, our sense for what is plausible, is totally dependent on our personal life histories, cultural conditioning, information diet, and social network biases. One person's linear projections seem too conservative. Another person's exponential change seems like a fantasy. If we can say one thing about our complex world, it might be that it always has, and always will, defy our expectations. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week, we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week, we join up with Caitlin McShay and the Interplanetary Project's Alien Crash Site podcast for a wild discussion with SFI trustee, technologist, and philosopher Gary Bengier about his science fiction novel, Unfettered Journey. This book takes readers forward more than a century into a highly automated, highly stratified post-climate change world in which our protagonist defies the rigid norms of his society to follow fundamental questions about mind, life, purpose, meaning, consciousness, and truth. It is a perfect backdrop to our conversation on the role of complex systems science in our understanding of both present-day society and the futures that may or may never come to pass. If you value our research and communication efforts, please subscribe to Complexity Podcast wherever you prefer to listen, rate and review us at Apple Podcasts, and or consider making a donation at santafe.edu slash give. I also highly recommend that you check out the show notes for this episode for an extensive list of follow-up resources to explore. Thank you for listening. Gary, it's a pleasure to have you on Complexity and Alien Crash Site. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael and Caitlin, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for um, inviting me. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Caitlin, do you want to kick this off? 
Well, it depends on which direction you want to go. Do we want to link it from SFI and go outward? Do we want to start with Gary and come back to complexity? Yeah, I think let's start with the autobiography piece. Great. Yeah, so so like the question would be then, Gary, who are you? What is your relationship (laughs) to SFI and what brought you here? What is the road that took you into your relationship? Which is, some might argue, a property, but certainly (laughs) we we won't go there yet. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I've been in uh, technology for over 30 years. I did a whole series of startups in uh, biosciences, in computer uh, chip design, in the internet, uh, high-tech windmills, so lots and lots of technologies I had the fortune to participate in. I took eBay public. Uh, I was chief financial officer 20 years ago, and we grew that uh, company to over $100 billion in stuff sold and thousands of employees. And then I then uh, moved on to other things like uh, philanthropy and then now being a writer. And as part of eBay, I uh, came in touch with uh, Santa Fe Institute. Uh, Pierre Omidyar, who's been an emeritus member of the board for a long time, uh, encouraged me to join. And I've been um, associated with the Institute all those years and had a delightful time just getting deep in the science. I think it's complexity sciences is fabulous. So that's my relationship there. Um, as I said, I, I turned to uh, philanthropy and then I went back to school. I backfilled an astrophysics degree. I got interested in philosophy. I backfilled a philosophy degree. I got a master's in philosophy focused on theory of mind. And then I was interested in getting some of those ideas about um, human consciousness sort of out into a bigger audience. You know, you know, you know, what is consciousness? What is that I that's at the center of you, Caitlin? You know, what is that really? And so those kinds of questions um, were things that I focused on thinking about for over a decade. And to make those ideas more accessible, I wrote this book. (laughs) So uh, the book is Unfettered Journey, and uh, that's been out now um, about a year. And the book has won six awards, and I'm very pleased with the reception. It's been going great. So the summary is I'm sort of a technologist, um, wannabe philosopher, and, uh, you know, new writer. So may I ask, uh, because I am very fascinated by this history, my background is also in philosophy. And so even though I can't really get my head around the foundational limits at any of the models that any of our researchers are presenting in seminars about intelligence or life, I don't ever feel like I'm completely excluded from the conversation. And so I wonder if maybe there was a particular incident, how does one shift, and it's a big shift, from technological development and finance and the intersection of technology to a philosophical exploration of consciousness and then eventually speculative fiction. <laughs> well, I'm not sure if it's a shift. I've actually <laughs> been thinking about some of these ideas for 30 years. And so once uh, I decided that I've done the uh, technology route for for long enough, you know, I like to say I had lots of at-bats. <laughs> and so after I did that, I actually had the chance to go back to uh, explore some things that I've been fascinated uh, with my entire life. So no, it wasn't really a shift. And I had the good fortune to be able to go deep on those ideas. So That's great. So uh, there's kind of two chunks that I really want to discuss here because the copy of the book that I'm holding has not only your science fiction in it, but it has a rather comprehensive philosophical appendix in which you explore this stuff in a bit more of a formal way. And I'd like to spend some time on both of these. 
I think we start with the novel okay. because I don't want any of our audience to fall asleep quickly. The you know philosophy itself is uh, the oldest fields, um, and the conversations can get very convoluted. And the appendices is dressed more toward that audience. The appendices are entitled Philosophical Explorations on Time, Ontology, and the Nature of Mind. And so there are three papers that cover those three topics. And those, quite honestly, those ideas are what I hope to get to a larger audience. And so the novel is a way to make some of those ideas accessible. So quite honestly, I, you know, I'm a believer in the scientific method, hands down. And I think that philosophers do not talk enough with scientists. I mean, we, we've had uh, Dan Dennett come to the San Francisco Institute, delighted to have that. He spent some time there for several months. But in general, uh, philosophers don't talk to mathematicians or physicists. And I think it's because they can't do the math. If you can't do the profound math, the very difficult math, then you're going to philosophy. <laughs> but, and to be at the front end of theoretical physics, you have to do the math. So much of that conversation, I think, is, is predicated on the fact that mathematics has proven, because of its elegance, to explain the world. And, you know, no one knows why that's true. Um, Wigner, once in a famous, very short paper, talks about the, basically, the surprising effect of mathematical knowledge in the natural sciences. And why is that? Why does math, if you find an elegant equation, and then you find that it relates to the real world, why is it that if you follow that trail of the mathematics, you tend to find the, the right empirical tests to find out the right answer that opens up how nature works. That is just astonishing. We have no idea why. But so at the front end of theoretical physics, you know, string theory, we've been looking at three, string theory for 30 years. And there are lots of crazy hypotheses out there, but uh, none of them really are testable yet, right? So, and yet, yet we spend an enormous amount of our physics, theoretical physics, working on those ideas that we can't test. And that's because we continue to follow Wigner's intuition, but that doesn't help us, right? So to summarize, philosophers and physicists don't talk to each other and there's a gulf there. And so I think there's some place that you can have a conversation in that interspace. Definitely. I mean, you know, reading this piece for me hooked back pretty cleanly to the conversation that we had with David Kinney on this show. You know, David being a, a formal epistemologist at SFI, a rare beast indeed, mm -hmm. but, you know, <laughs> uh, for that reason, especially valuable, I think. And, and your pieces on ontological relations and on the nature of mind and time, I think really illuminated for me some of the stuff that we were talking about in his own work on, on causal networks. But before we get there, I think you're right to let's, let's start in the work of science fiction and without ruining plot for people, I would like to engage with you a little bit on the nature of world building because, you know, Caitlin threw this interplanetary festival and curated this, this awesome panel in 2019 on world building, where we had a bunch of science fiction authors together on, on stage talking about it in a way that reflected through the SFI lens makes the work of writing fiction look like 
the design of parameters in an agent-based model. Ah, yes. <laughs> so to set something forward in time, you know, in 2161, you're coming in with a set of basically like Bayesian priors, you know, like assumptions about the world as it is. Okay, okay. And then creating a, a verbal model, a device, and then letting it run is kind of how I understood your process here. Okay, so... so- so you mentioned the panel, and I hope I'm not going to diss those <laughs> participants because I might have a slightly different idea on this. But let's talk about the modeling thing. So as we know about agent-based models, they typically have agents run by simple set of, of rules, and those rules then you put in motion and you see what happens. But we know that if you pick crazy rules or wrong rules, then they quickly grind to a halt. They give you no information. So it's important to pick those rules carefully. And I think if you look at across genre science fiction these days, there's so much dystopian sci-fi out there these days. It's so genre. And what I think happens is writers tend to pick some particular idea and then they take it to the absurd extreme. And that's where the conversation has fallen into is those extremes. I take a different tact is I think that we are better served to use a hard science framework for how this works. We can take the engineering today and what we know, and we can run that forward and we can come up with highly likely scenarios. And I think we should focus on those. So because then you're just having a conversation that is not very helpful because I think running those forward, we have some real problems to solve and we should focus on those problems. So that's my take on how one should do that. And let's take the you know utopian, dystopian future. Humans have evolved with certain kinds of characteristics like altruism, like hope. And these are complex systems, of course. And as humankind moves forward, I think those are going to mitigate some of our worst characteristics. Um, and, you know, yes, we've evolved to be competitive. We have some deep, dark aspects. Our fellow writer, Cormac McCarthy, on our Santa Fe board, he explores those very, very deeply and disturbingly in many cases, I think. Uh, <laughs> but I think, um, I think the reality of what our future looks like is somewhere in between. And so that's what I explore. So I have a hard science view. So maybe let me give you a couple examples if we can explore my world building and how that agent-based model moves forward. So let's take up two or three. Okay, I think that for this next century, the two largest technologies that will drive everything about humankind are bioscience and AI and robotics. Okay, But I will say that though bioscience will have a tremendous impact on human life that in a hundred years, in many ways, we won't notice. (laughs) Okay. If you went back to the 1950s, they still had polio, right? We don't have polio now, but we live, you know, um, you know, 10 or 20 years longer than we did before um, and, and, and live with greater health, but we don't notice it. We'd expect that to be normal. And it's, I think, you know, in a hundred years, 150 years, will we cure cancer? I think, I think, yes. Um, We'll fix a lot of these things. Jeffrey West wrote his book on scale, and uh, he explores that the end of that parameter. And I think he suggests that if we cure all of cancer, we will add to the uh, human lifespan about six years. If we cure all of the heart disease-related ailments, we'll add on the order of three or four years. And then you take next year down, you pick one or two. So order of we'll add a decade to the median lifespan by fixing all those things. So this will take a long time. Do I think that humans will live forever? No. You know, 
Will we live a lot longer? Yes, I think so. So that's one. I think that's what bioscience will do. Let's move to the second one, AI and robotics. I have a slightly more conservative view than lots. Um, you know, there are there are forecasts. You know, we see Boston Dynamics. The we see the robots dancing with Mick Jagger. We see them shooting free throws from the center line on the court during the Olympics and making perfect baskets. And we think, wow, this is just around the corner, right? I think that this is going to take a lot longer. It's more akin to the automobile, you know, which basically took a decade, uh, a century to get to the cars that we know today. You know, we yeah, Henry Ford was around a, a century ago. But, you know, the cars that we have today with all the electronics, with the road systems, the infrastructure that needed was needed, with the legal systems and insurance issues and social issues of interfacing with these automobiles that kill us, took a long time. And so I think that's true about AI and robotics. But I think it's highly likely that we in 140 years will have robots walking among us. And why is that? Because we've got trillions of dollars of infrastructure that is human-sized. And yet there's enormous number of reasons why, for economic reasons, that will continue to be developed. And so that's a highly likely thing to happen. So, okay, sorry, are you disagreeing that in 140 years we'll have robots walking around it? Can I just make a remark about that claim? Quite often when we think about the robotic future in science fiction, it's human-sized, roughly human-shaped robots walking around. And I always took that to be a sort of anthropomorphic lack of imagination. So this infrastructure posit that you make is really interesting to me because, of course, we wouldn't want to engineer new societies to accommodate whatever the AI is. That You know, it, it seems we still have roads, we still have doorways, we still have elevators. And so yes. that suggestion as to why human-shaped things will exist among us is the most persuasive I've heard so far. So I do like that. Yes, as far as pulling in a complex systems principle of path dependency or canalization or entrenchment, then the niche defines what fills the niche, right? Exactly. But, you know, I'm also thinking about Robin Hansen, you know, who wrote this book, Age of M, in which he's looking at it and starting from yes. kind of a similar place. You know, he's, he's looking at it in a very Jeffrey West kind of way okay. and arguing that following a Moore's Law kind of arms race to the fast, that robotics are going to get smaller and smaller and faster and faster. And then they will have basically leverage over things operating on the human scale in the same way that humans basically eradicated megafauna. Okay. I've read M and I put that into my, you know, absurd end of the spectrum, quite honestly. In fact, in terms of my scenarios, there's a couple of devices that we have in 140 years. And I think when people first read them, they might think, oh, that's a little weird. She's Single Magazine wrote that this future feels eerily realistic. And I think that's a fair thing. So as an example, you carry your iPhone around, right? You can, might use Siri, right? We connect to the internet through the cloud, right? Uh, so in 140 years, can you imagine this? That you have a chip in your head and that you have a corneal implant that can be like a little screen. And you have something called a Nest, a neural to external systems transmitter, which is basically on the chip. And it connects you to the net, the cloud at the time. And so you can talk to it. You could just say, you know, where's the closest pizza shop? <laughs> and... What it does is, you know, it downloads it and it point, it paints uh, using an ARMO, an augmented reality map overlay. It points a little um, map on your cornea and you can just follow the little red line to find the pizza shop. 
Those sorts of things, right? So essentially, you've got something that we already have, and it sounds weird that you would get a chip in your head, but I think that'll happen. Okay, but what are the limits? Elon Musk, uh, you know, he has this Neuralink, and he was demonstrating that. I think that that is going to be quite limited because it's taken a million years of evolution to, to evolve our vision, our hearing. The uh, V1 in our brain takes up the size in our brain as a, of a total cat's brain. Okay, it's huge, and those are the ways that we'll interface with the world. You know, and those are working at chemical speeds. Okay, very very slow. Already our chips are, you know, millions of times orders of magnitude faster than our human. We will not make that work very well. So I don't think we're going to have realistic sort of cyborgs. And yes, we'll have we'll have artificial limbs and that will continue. But getting the brain to interface is something I just don't think is going to happen. And that's where I think we're off in the crazy land of forecasting. So, Well, I mean, we already have like high frequency trading algorithms that exert weird leverage over the economy. Like, you know, these things happen and then we look back on them 10 years later and we still don't understand. So I'm curious how else you see nonlinearities and this kind of thing fitting into this world building, I mean, given especially that your world takes place after climate change and wars that precipitate out of climate yes. change. So like that, that has to figure yes. into your timeline for tech development and, and the evolution of social hierarchy and so on. Okay. So the conceit of the timeline is, is that, you know, around the year 2100, we have the climate wars fought over resources, et cetera. And as a result of that, we need to rebuild certain things. And the rebuilding is accomplished a lot by robots taking the rest of the jobs and robots are building robots. And, you know, so in 2161, uh, we still have lots of stuff. So, so let me point on two things economically, how I get there. The first, just before COVID, there was a workshop at the Santa Fe Institute with the title AI in the Barrier of Meaning. And I attended that and a lot of AI scientists were down there, Melanie Mitchell, uh, who you just had on an earlier podcast and, and many others. And they were fairly uh, cynical about how fast this would develop. There, there was one presentation that I loved. It talked about the disappearance of jobs as we have more automation. And so the image was of a topology landscape, you know, with hills and valleys. And water rising w was the analogy for jobs going away. So the question was, what jobs disappear first? You know, what's on the top of the hills? Well, top of the hills might be your jobs, you know, podcasting. Right? <laughs> it's very hard to do that. And, and I argue that one of those jobs is roofer. Okay, because the guy that climbs up on the shingles with the, on the roof with a bunch of shingles and tacks in place, that's really hard to automate. But that eventually, because the roofers will be making $400,000 a year, that too will be automated. And that's the robots walking around when we have a general purpose robot on a standard chassis, et cetera, et cetera. Eventually that will happen. And when that happens, it's all over in the sense that the vast majority of what we think of jobs today will be gone. Hopefully, many will be replaced. But I think, I think again, that's going to happen. That is a highly likely outcome. We are today, we have increasing automation, and we're going to get to a place where we have lots of robots, robots making robots, and very few jobs. And we have to figure out how in this century we cross that economic chasm and keep a society have a society that is operational, that, that works. And that's one of our big hard science challenges 
in the world, I think. So could I ask about, I mean, you made the very complimentary example of the podcast interviewer uh, being an exception to this sort of loss of job. But it seems like that example is a, is a stark division between something like labor and something like thought. And I think a lot of this book and a lot of your interest and that very symposium about the barrier of meaning in AI still protects maybe the jobs for those who think. But I don't know if you think at maybe 250 years, 300 years will GPT-3 our way out of thought. I don't know. But I wonder, <laughs> I wonder what kinds of positions or what kinds of approaches to existence in the world are safe from automation. I think that's hard. And if you look at the book, there are some what I'll call really cool jobs. There's a job of running an orbital base circling the moon, whose mission is to lead humankind's efforts to explore exoplanets, mm -hmm. right? But, you know, those are cool jobs. We would love to have those jobs. I think it's interesting if you think about this future, it's a future where maybe having a job is a privilege. And I think irrespective of the creative pursuits that we're talking about, there'll be too much output and it will be hard, just as today we have a hard time absorbing all of the content, right? It's harder to convince people to read a book today because they're constantly being interrupted with their attention taken from all kinds of things. And so the key then question is, how do we find purpose as individuals when you may be making a lot of stuff, but no one's reading your poetry, okay? <laughs> and the, the fun, cool jobs of actually doing something in the real world are limited. And, and there's tremendous competition for those. So. And, and this is likely, okay, here's an interesting economic fact. Um, if you just take, I've modeled the U.S. GDP and the world GDP going forward to the year 2161, looking at current growth rates for over the average of the last 20, 30 years. And it turns out by that year, we'll have 10 to 20 times as much stuff per person as we do now. So we'll have a lot of stuff. And we have robots making robots. So now there's the, I think, enormous social question. And this is a question that is you know, cr crossing that chasm. How do we get there? Um, who owns the robot factories? This is the first time in humankind that, um, in human history, that we will not be faced with those questions of you know, the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, food, shelter, clothing. There'll be lots of stuff. And so here, here I am, I'm a bona fide capitalist, right? <laughs> Spent my, my career in technology. And yet I'm a strong proponent of the guaranteed income. And I think that it is not sustainable. It is not an, it's not an equilibrium point economically to have the ownership of the robot factories being owned by anyone except all of society. And so what I'm suggesting from a world building is that I really think this is highly likely and I think that we will be replacing our current economic system at some point by something else. And in terms of thinking about creating this sort of authentic world, as you described, is that thought that occurs to you a consequence of imagining a post-climate resource war? It seems like there has to be a sort of redistribution. <laughs> no, actually not. We have an enormous amount of concern about climate change, rightly, right? Right. I think the way I would look at it slightly differently is that this is a really long-term problem. This is millennium. Our own Harvard geologist, there was a Zoom workshop for the Santa Fe Institute talking about climate change about a, eight months ago. Mm -hmm. And the most telling comment was the comment that geologists are starting to conclude that Greenland is lost. In other words, because the world is like a black body, heat, just using that fundamental physics, 
if the world did not have any oceans, the amount of carbon in the atmosphere would already cause runaway heating. The fact that three quarters of the Earth are oceans is a heat sink. But that heat sink means that we've put off the problem that's already been baked in. And that even if we do lots of really good things, we're still going to have this fundamental problem that will go on for many, many centuries. So what I've done in the book is make the very optimistic assumption that in 140 years, we'll kind of finally get religion on this topic. We will figure out how to get to a net negative carbon. We'll do carbon sequestration. We'll do all those things we need to do. We'll probably need to have fusion, I think. And I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll have fission and fusion together. And still fu- fusion to make it practical is probably 50 years away if we're lucky. But fission and fusion, I mean, and to get rid of all carbon use. And and maybe we'll turn the corner on that. And in my book, I assume then that Venice is lost. Yeah. Probably, you know, New Orleans is lost. Jakarta, they're already moving the capital to Sulawesi, right? Mumbai. So there'll be lots of dislocations. And I think that a lot of that is going to happen. But I'm optimistic that we get past this because of human ingenuity. So it's not easy. So that's the thesis of my book. It's sort of somewhat uh, on the border of utopian that we actually solve this, you know, existential problem. Mm-hmm. But again, there's lots of dystopian books that assume that, you know, have climate uh, disaster and we can't ever save ourselves. And then we're just down into absolute calamity. So. Well, you know, one thing I found fairly believable, although I'd like to kind of pick at it a little bit, if you don't mind, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the emergent caste system, the Levels Act, that stratifies American <laughs> yes, society yes. into like a hundred <laughs> <Yes>. different... <laughs> This is your legally preordained guild. And on one level, that's very believable because, you know, we've got recent research, kind of sobering, disappointing research that was led by Eliza Heinrich Mora, Jeff West, Vicky Yang, Chris Kempis, and a couple other folks outside of SFI worked on this piece that showed that even though average per capita income grows faster than population in cities, the inequality grows even faster. And so actually more than wealth, what cities are generating is poverty. So, you know, like, I kind of want to just like put a couple pieces together here. Okay. I totally agree with you on that one. You know, that's basically, I I think that's not going to happen. So that was probably my one exception, but one needs conflict to write a novel. The conceit in the novel is because the U.S. has more of a focus on property rights, as this who owns the robot factories question is put to society. Whereas other countries, as Mike, the economist, says, uh, have found more egalitarian answers in the U.S., the oligarchs who own those factories demanded a quid pro quo for giving them to society. And that was the set of laws that instituted something called the Levels Acts, where everyone was assigned a level from one at the top to 99 at the bottom. And supposedly it was merit-driven and you could move up and down the levels and all that sort of thing. But in reality, there's a question of whether it was there were legacy. And, and, and so here's, here's the question I was hoping to pose that, that with that is because one of the things that science fiction and speculative fiction does is frequently is looks at our own society. So do we have levels today? Well, yes. <laughs> I mean, the, right, the question is whether or not they're explicitly assigned or right. whether they're sort of emergent as a consequence well, of lack this, of distribution. This, well, this yes. gets to a really this gets to the question that I yeah. wanted to ask you Gary, which is about yeah. a lot of people at SFI have scrutinized 
meritocracy and, you know, scrutinized also the idea in a way kind of similar to the ways that you scrutinize certain notions about there being sort of like universal time, you know, a single past, Mm -hmm. present, and future that like a consistent non-relativistic time, you know, for all observers, there's this question about economic value and the idea of a caste system such as the levels in in your book, I think presupposes that we know what constitutes, how do we quantify this? And so another SFI adjacent person, you know, historian Peter Turchin has this beautiful blog entry on what he calls the double helix of inequality and and, uh, social stability, where he's saying basically the larger the gap between the rich and the poor, the more likely this whole thing is to implode. And you look at research in complex systems dating back to Bob May's 1972 piece on will a complex system be stable, where he's saying, you know, the the more edges in a network, the more opportunities there are for something to go wrong. Raisa D'Souza gave a great talk at this in our 2019 symposium. We'll link to in the show notes. So so there's this 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 question that has to do with like how do we intentionally apply breaks so as to keep the stratification that you're describing here from growing so large that it undermines its own ability to encode merit, you know? Cause like right now we're seeing like all the tokenization and fractionalization of everything in three. It just seems like what actually constitutes money or value is completely up for grabs now in a way it wasn't 10 years ago. I'm curious about all your thoughts on that. Okay, so I deal with that topic in throwing it out there for conversation, maybe in the example of Dina Taggart who's the character who is the the leader of the wise orbital base that I described earlier. She's got this fabulous job. She's this tremendous business kind of uh, leader, right? You may notice that her last name resembles some character in a book, Taggart. Does anyone know Dagny Taggart? No. From Atlas Shrugged from Ayn Rand. Okay. Ah. Okay. So Ayn Rand's main character is Dagny Taggart. And this is where, you know, in my study of philosophy, I think Ayn Rand created a book that encapsulates her ideas. But from a moral perspective, she goes off the rails because those characters lack any sense of understanding and compassion for an average person. They call for those makers are supreme and they can decide everything as opposed to everyone else who are the takers in that scenario. And Dina Taggart, (laughs) she, in a conversation with Joe, describes how, no, you can't think of it that way. Because Joe says something that actually, and I'll give credit to uh, David Krakauer, uh, I stole the line from him once. And Joe says, wait a minute, doesn't one Einstein make a university? (laughs) The argument for the power of greatness, right? He's actually stating that. He actually says something. Isn't it a story of giants calling to their brothers, which is a line from Nietzsche? Again, this overman kind of theory. And Dina says, no, that's not right. We stand on the shoulders of the giants before us. Even Tesla had people in his lab. And the big moral failure is hubris. And so human society moves ahead because we work together in community. And that's how we move ahead as a species. So that whole conversation that I'm trying to raise there is a conversation about how we as humans can get across this chasm. And I think it's based upon that need for community, notwithstanding the benefits of the Einsteins. So, 
Well, to the point of research communities, and, and at this point, I feel like I'm, I want to toss the ball to Caitlin, because this is where I feel the alien crash site themes really start to take over. But you've got these two spaces in the geography of your story that seem very familiar to those of us working at SFI, one being Lone Mountain College, you know, this this location where your protagonist takes his sabbatical to cool his heels and think about artificial consciousness. And then and determinism yes. and randomness and the organ consciousness. Right. And then there's yes. the zone, which is this uh, kind of neither here nor there kind of prison area, a low technological lacuna in this advanced society. And of course, zones are a preoccupation with alien crash site, but also with SFI in as much as it considers itself to inhabit a kind of theoretical zone in which things are, are not completely worked out. So... Yeah. Okay, so just before you go to the alien crash, like, so, but let me talk about the, the, particularly the zone issue. So this was in part an exploration of the concept of how do we use our technology? Because this is a futuristic book, and I mentioned some of those technologies, and that sounds a little crazy and not very human. But what is fundamental to humanity, and that's where the characters end up in this place where they have to start anew. I don't know if you noticed that this this book has many layers, okay? <laughs> there, some famous uh, characters said something, it's like an onion, it has many layers. I think that was Shrek. You know? <laughs> but one of the layers, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's essentially an allegory of the Adam and Eve story. Well, I think it's uh, no no question as to why when, when Joe finds himself suddenly rethinking his perspective on the world, it's out of a love for a woman named Evie and everything that she's doing, <laughs> including sharing food with him. Okay. <laughs> yes, okay. Right, 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 right. And, you know, you have to start civilization over in some sense here. And and, and in isolation. And, Sorry, I don't want and to And in isolation. <laughs> exactly. Right, exactly. Right, right, right. No, I think those are fine spoilers. Because then where does that lead to? Can one do well on one's own? You know, there's a lot of dystopian books today. And I, I very they disturb me because they imagine lots of apocalyptic things happen. And then the result is we all get our guns and we hunker down in shelter and we protect our family and we're willing to kill other people. I mean, it's there's there's this there's this very dystopian feeling underneath that and it's lacking a morality, okay? You know, is that our future? I, I hope not, but I, I think the answer is even if you started over, you would basically rebuild to something like we have today and you would face the same problems. Mm-hmm. You would face the same problems of complexity And you would have to deal with how we as human beings get along and work together. And that's going to let us build this intellectual property, which is, you know, the sum of human genius and and to to use it to improve, uh, you know, everything and ultimately to give us purpose. So that's kind of where the zone comes in. Okay. (laughs) But Michael, I think you wanted to turn to Alien Crash, right? Well, I mean, we only have a few minutes left. I want to make sure that Caitlin gets the... Yeah. And I mean, obviously, technology and its relationship to humanity's future weighs so heavily as a central theme of this text. So it's clearly something you've thought about. The difference between your text is that it's a little more plausible than life after an alien visitation, at least these days, with all of our (laughs) science out seeking the, the very exoplanets you describe. So before we get there, I wonder if there's even a relation, but you had talked about how you have this sort of optimistic thought that humanity will sort of if they collectively attest to their damages, collect to resolve those and that technology could help in that endeavor. Obviously, technology allows us to communicate along very broad distances now. So when you think about 
a future that is, you know, crossing this chasm of individuality into a collective endeavor, do you think the technology is a way through that? And if so, how do you imagine that to be the case? And then I'll ask you about aliens. <laughs> okay, well, I think it's um, a way through it in terms of, uh, you know, our biggest challenge is climate change. We're going to need to use our technology to figure out answers to that problem. And we're going to have to solve it. And we're going to live with consequences in any case. The question is just how difficult they make human life in the next many centuries ahead of us. But I think lots of speculative fiction overemphasizes technology and we're human and we've had a million years of evolution and those things that make us human will remain unchanged. And so I think in the story, you'll realize the characters relate as humans that we can relate to. So it's, it's not a weird world. It just feels like today in many ways. Right. But it does seem like there's this really lovely separation between the, the lovers, let's say the two protagonists, and then actually the rest of the world, some of their friends who are engaged in some interesting social justice uh, work as well. But there's something about the removal from that technological world that causes a sort of reinvigoration, uh, or I guess a recalibration of behavior that I think is really kind of at the, the heart of how we might address climate change too. We obviously will need to technologically innovate ourselves out of it. But if we can sort of conjoined collectively in a, in a recalibration of the way that we behave in the world that we occupy, that would certainly be helpful too. So I'm not sure that it's not a coupled solution. Although it's also true that David Krakauer's recent reflection on his, his optimistic assessment of collective behavior as in response to the pandemic, he's like, well, I've, I've kind of given up hope that we're capable, but yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe Gary hasn't. Yeah, Gary. <laughs> Well, well, I think COVID's done a lot of things for us. It, it, let, it caused a lot of people to reassess, you know, how they live and what things that they value, right? And, and you know, some people don't want to go back to those terrible jobs they had before. And, you know, now let's just fast forward our lives, to, say, pre-COVID, you know, where we have too many things coming at us, right? We have too much social media. We have too many things to do. We're on this treadmill. So many of the people on this planet are on the treadmill right? And that's our life. Is that inevitable? What will happen in the future when we have even more intrusive technology? We'll have less privacy. We'll have less headspace that we can actually think or not, because we're going to have to make that choice ourselves. So I think part of the zone part of the book was to maybe have one think about that in your own life. And, and you know, what do we want as human beings? But it's not just, it's, the answer is not just technology. So. No, right. And that I at the center of us is not certainly interested in technology. I mean, the, one of the first things the protagonist of this book does is separate himself from his Siri. Yeah. <laughs> he's just right. like That's laying right. the foundation. That's right. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, let's turn, to, let's turn to Roadside Picnic, sure. which I thought is a okay. great book. I, you know, read the novel recently. I love it because it cuts down some of the standard tropes about what will happen with first contact with some other species. You know, the tropes include, you know, the War of the Worlds, where they come and kill us, or Star Trek, where you have after the creation of Warp Drive, the Vulcans come and they come in logic and peace, right? Right, so, we're all best friends. Uh, this, yeah, they're all that. This is just, a, a, I think, a very amusing other take. So, you know, the aliens land, they sort of have a roadside picnic. We must be like mere ants, not even worth trying to communicate with. And then they leave and they have all this detritus left, which we can't understand because the technology 
is so advanced. So, you know, I mean, I think that's great. Uh, I think that this is a book written by some really good Soviet science fiction writers. And I think it more talks to uh, life in the 1970s in the Soviet Union. Absolutely. And And as you said, I mean, that's great. And your text, as you said, is multi-layers. I think that uh, it's, it's good to have these sort of analog explorations of the contemporary time that one lives within. So yes, I think yeah. that the Strugatsky brothers are really touching upon that sort of Soviet lifestyle in this very terribly condensed economy that's really all about <laughs> what they cannot understand this other has done to their space, even though they want to, and even though it may have been friendly. Okay, great. Well, that was a fabulous synopsis. Now I have to ask you the alien crash site question. Gary, at the risk of imprisonment, great personal injury, even death. What object would you hope to uncover from an alien crash site? Okay. So uh, my object is I would like to discover the equivalent of a credit card. This is a credit card that, you know, you can, it's readable, decipherable. You can pull out the code and we could have the world's computer scientist digging through it and trying to figure out what it actually says. And what we're really looking for is one fact. It's in our credit cards. What's the default rate? Okay, because the default rate, I mean, for humans in credit cards, it's about one percent. Okay, and the reason why that's so important is that tells us something about the species' honesty. Okay, because if that rate is really little, then we can rest with some sigh of relief that when and if they come back and they're not going to kill us. <laughs> and if it's really high, then we'll know we can't trust them and we'll be figuring out how to arm ourselves, whatever we can do. <laughs> so, because I think, and I think in alien contact, the, 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 the trustworthiness of the other species is so paramount, right? To, to how that relationship will go. So. Right. And it seems that if we have that default rate, were we able to decipher it as you, I think, optimistically suggested we might be able to, what I think we glean is how much these individuals trust each other. <laughs> and I think that if the rate is very high, yes. we realize that there's some contention there. So if they're not even cohesive in the same way that we're not cohesive, you know, oh boy, watch out. But but isn't that in some sense perhaps an evolutionarily determined statistic about humans? Well, now I'm, I'm thinking about uh, Paul Smaldino's work on the evolution of covert signaling, the way that telling a lie is kind of an evolutionarily stable strategy. It, you know, it finds its level <laughs> in a given society. But it's like, Adjacent to the, the I, I honestly, you know, given the amount of time that you spend on the philosophical question of the mental, where we are going to find an interior, you know, a subject, I kind of expected there was a way to twist this. And maybe we can just ask you the same question twice. There's a way to, to twist this so that it reflects upon your book. And the, the question of, you know, some first contact stories like Peter Watts's novel Blindsight propose that what we're actually going to meet when we meet an extraterrestrial intelligence are their robots, basically. And then, you know, I mean, that <laughs> yes. seems likely given our current trajectory. Give, you know, you talk about that, sending robots out for exploration. I, 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 to- I totally agree with that. Yeah, I, I think, but hopefully the robots, well, presumably the robots will be programmed by those species and that that programming will reflect their own uh, moral 
fundamental code. And so, you know, humans, for example, where did altruism come from? And there's been a lot of research onto trying to explain how that might arise through evolution, right? And it's a little bit of a quirky thing to think how that happens. It's sort of like uh, the springbok is a is a creature in Africa. And it turns out that when the springboks are surprised by a lion or something, one of them jumps up and down in place, okay? And all the other ones run like hell. And that one's most likely to be eaten. So how does that happen? <laughs> that, that that trait gets evolutionarily conserved, right? So, But in human... In human evolution, somehow things like altruism and, and all of those traits have come about. So that says something about who we are. So Yeah. Um, and it seems to me that you think a lot about these sort of like anomalous, uh, emergent evolutionary traits against competition. And so this yeah, is almost, yeah. I don't want to say that maybe a high alien default rate would suggest that actually these aliens are, are fine. They trust because they know that there's some sort of a contract in place that, but like either way, it's like, <laughs> yeah, buy your house, buy your spaceship, go visit earth, even though it's totally yeah, boring. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what, I mean, you give the, the springbok as an example, but you, you seem to suggest that there's a lot more of it in humans. And I wonder why. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Why would that yeah, be? What is the so. distinction that might separate the human from having that a little more and demonstrating it more often, perhaps these aliens too, than, than the animal kingdom from which it, it emerged? Well, I don't know. I, I, as I, I mentioned earlier, um, I tend to be more of an optimist about in the, in the bubonic death black plague of the 13th century. I mean, we lost huge percentages of the population of Western Europe. And yet we continued, right? And we continue. You know, we we persevere against all kinds of things. And, you know, this climate change is one more example, and I think we'll figure it out. So I'm hopeful that we'll come to that idea that community is important, that the only way we solve these problems is to work together. It's going to be complex. It's going to be a nonlinear century. And how we get from where we are across that chasm of lots of robotics, very few jobs, how do you find purpose? How do we make sure that people don't sink into using synthetic drugs and anesthetize themselves from their hopelessness of their life? All those things are, I think, are real issues. But I'm, I have some hope that we'll get there because uh, think about that world. We'll have lots of stuff. Uh, we'll have met all of the, the needs from Maslow's hierarchy. The world will be um, more difficult to live in. But, you know, there is a way to solve this. It's not, it's not hopeless. It's, and actually, there's a lot of hope for it being a lot better. So. If I can, Caitlin, I think we have time for one more quick. Yeah, that'd be great. Which is elsewhere in other interviews and in uh, the piece that you wrote about your book for the Good Men Project, you bring up the fact that, yeah, most people writing science fiction before the iPhone didn't include the iPhone, that this was a kind of a singularity in its own right, mm -hmm. that linear projections tend to fail us. But in the same piece, you also said perhaps we should focus on the much more highly likely march of existing technological curves. So as we would expect from someone affiliated with SFI, you appear to contradict yourself. You know, <laughs> like you're both arguing for and against the surprise, basically. And, I, and I'm curious, you know, just maybe as a, a kind of a parting volley, what would surprise you the most? Like what, what do you think cuts against your own expectations of probability about the future, be it the future that you write in this book or otherwise? Well, so yeah, there is some um, dissonance in those answers. I mean, I think I'm 
arguing against what I see in a lot of science fiction today is, as I started off in our beginning, to take everything to the absurd. And so much of the conversation is focused on those absurd things, you know, uploading brains, all this kind of crazy stuff about robots. And that's just nonsense. That's not going to happen anytime soon. I would argue because of evolution. And as I said about the way we've evolved, uh, it's probably not going to ever happen, right? Neuralink is going to be a tiny bit of technology to help people with various kinds of impairments, but it's not going to be mainstream. We won't be doing that. But let's focus on where the technology will likely take us. Within that parameter, as we know from Santa Fe Institute, it's so complex. There's lots of nonlinearities. So what kinds of nonlinearities? Well, Isaac Asimov in the Foundation Trilogy talks about a world that covers 10,000 years. He, too, was writing about his own time, you know, World War II and Hitler. And there's this crazy anomalous guy who disrupts everything. And so the psycho-historians and all their wonderful predictions couldn't predict because of the nonlinearity. That is so true, right? We know that because of what we've learned at the Santa Fe Institute and understanding the theory. So this century, I'm pointing to what I think are the major issues that will create a chasm when we have to cross those. Can we as humankind do that successfully? I don't know. But I think that we have a bigger possibility of being successful if we focus all of these bright minds on those right problems and not get distracted. What an endorsement. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Yeah. Thank you, Gary, both for your support and for writing an interesting book. I feel like we really only just kind of danced across the surface of this text. And I had like a whole page of questions we didn't have time for, but, but <laughs> well, thank you for taking this time. We missed some other things, you know, it, as I said, Unfettered Journey, you can find it wherever you find books. It's won six awards, including best spiritual book of 2020. There's an entire um, part of the, the theme that talks about how we find purpose in this rapidly changing world. So I would love to have more readers to continue this discussion. And thank you. Uh, Michael and Caitlin. Gary, thank you so much for coming and for encouraging individuals to seek out whatever that purpose is, because I think the encouragement is really serious um, and necessary in a time when I think people are becoming sort of like specialists in something that isn't their own fulfillment necessarily. It's very inspiring. Um, And thank you for your alien crash site object. Of course, we never find (laughs) evidence of any dark credits, but that's okay. We have a credit card. I'm actually now afraid of a first contact scenario in which we find the credit card of an alien race with a 75% default rate. Like, why do you even have credit? That's right. What is this? They're just evading their debt, and that's why they're on on Earth. They just foisted it off on us. That's right. No, Gary, this was wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay, great. Thanks a lot. This was really great. And Michael, yeah, yeah, we did cover some other topics that we haven't explored before this. So this is great. Awesome. and I think we've also um, added a few more comments on Santa Fe Institute that we, than I normally yeah. get to. So that's great. All right. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.